I mean, I don't know whether I should be pathologized or not. Like, we live in an age where the self contains through two things, who we want to be and what disease we're going to explain away our mistakes with. And uh, so there's this temptation to locate myself on some kind of spectrum. I mean, I think if we just turn everything into a spectrum, I'm probably actually in the Tourette's spectrum. But uh, when I was growing up, I was a pretty socially alienated kid um, who found interactions extremely anxiety producing. And then I discovered role-playing games. And one of the things about the early role-playing games is that they hyper-structure things. So there are so many rules, and but there's a fairness, right? You mediate what's going on using the rules. And what I found is that people who were a little short on social intuition, not charisma, but intuition, gravitate towards environments where there are lots of rules and very clear ranks. So you find people who play D&D, there's an odd cross-section we share with people who join the army. Um, when uh, the occupation of Afghanistan became really protracted, there was a massive push for us to all send our old rule books to Afghanistan because so many of our soldiers were D&D players because these are the environments in which you can gain levels. You'll also find that now that the Freemasons have no power, um, the Masons are full of those people as well. People who can't handle the highly improvisational and rapidly changing set of rules in our world. If you live in a space, especially an urban space, where no one is forced to associate with you, um, and it's faddish, and the rules of social interaction are unstable, you gravitate towards spaces where the rules of social interaction are more stable and less faddish, and that there's a text that one can appeal to. So certainly my early social successes uh, were playing D&D. And there was a moment, um, during the brief period I got to be a suburban dad with a barbecue, um, I was looking after some kids, and one of them had been diagnosed with autism, conduct disorder, sensory processing disorder, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the intervention I used to help uh, this kid out was D&D. I found the most codified, most stable rule system for a game I could, and we played the game, and it dispelled her omnipresent sense of social anxiety that she was making incorrect choices. And um, when the relationship I was in ended, I was actually involved in a fairly important project with the University of Calgary to use uh, tabletop role-playing games as an intervention for assisting uh, kids with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and uh, autism spectrum. Um, because having more explicit and codified and more stable rules really help. So that's important, 
Now, it just so happened that in the early 80s, I encountered an RPG that had really been written as in opposition to a religious studies department. So Greg Stafford was working on his PhD in religious studies, and he developed some theories about how ancient religion worked, um, most of which were not accepted academically at the time. And so instead, he built this game called RuneQuest, which was very focused on what most RPGs don't look at. Greg Stafford was socially just fine. And so what he was interested in doing was modeling not individual interactions, which RPGs focus on with trying to hit someone or trying to charm someone or whatever, and not on broad cosmologies where you describe the universe and how it's structured and who the gods are. Stafford was focused on why people join social organizations why people become part of social movements and how those social movements work. And I believe that uh, Stafford's use of the RuneQuest rules to theorize how social organizations work and how they interact with broad cosmological concepts was probably, um, although it was a very non-mainstream activity, more than anything else, it equipped me to interact in a mainstream way. It centered the problem on the things that I was bad at, which was like, how do you stack together with other people to get things done? And uh, in the le later years after, in the 1990s, the religious studies discipline largely accepted Stafford's views. Um, there's no acknowledgement, though, that Stafford was on to something, that he'd theorized the ancient world and its religious practice better than other people's. Um, his reward just was to have made a once popular game that sank into obscurity. So, uh, anyway, uh, hello, everybody. Welcome. Good to see folks. Uh, I've been having a this is about the most overloaded my life has ever been. I am right at my wits end teaching this course. I really didn't expect to get the job at UNBC, so I have a full-time job, and I'm teaching these two courses, and the political party I'm organizing is demanding huge amounts of energy from me, and, and, and. So I'm just wiped. And I feel, though, that today is a serendipitous day because our curriculum has synced up with a thing that's unfolding right now. Um, that uh, what I'm pretty excited about is um, the fact that this is um, the moment where we talk about how identitarianism is affecting epistemology. Uh, and we are right there right now. So there's this amazing text that came out. It's a deeply flawed text um, that came, that my friend Molly Worthen uh, was key in organizing. My friend Molly is a real go-getter, up-and-comer, uh, religious studies professor at Chapel Hill, graduated with a PhD from Yale, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, and Molly was one of the organizers of a very strange open letter in Harper's Bazaar that was published last week that has a lot of people in a tizzy. Now, this letter uh, basically articulated the following theory, that the intolerance for dissent that was mobilized on the political right by the Trump movement has fused with a pre-existing thing we colloquially refer to as cancel culture. And that consequently, um, cancel culture is borrowing from populist authoritarian epistemologies and populist authoritarian epistemologies are borrowing from cancel culture. And that there is this shared plight um, that is now suffusing our public discourse. Uh, so this open letter was produced by a really problematic group of people. Um, for me, for me, the most problematic person on the list was David Frum. Because, of course, David Frum created a completely false narrative that was used to explain the invasion of Iraq. So David Frum is a war criminal um, who justified Dick Cheney and George W. Bush's murder of a million Iraqis. He's one of the people who signed the letter. Um, another person who signed the letter was J.K. Rowling, the children's fantasy author. Another person who signed the letter was Noam Chomsky, uh, author of Manufacturing Consent, and the longest-term cultural critic of the hegemonic control of communication within capitalist society. And the letter read like a letter that had been written by a large committee, because it was a letter that had been written by a large committee. Um, the various authors of the letter had all kinds of different issues. But what they all agreed on was that a normative left-right consensus on cancel culture was emerging. The other thing they agreed on was that most of the authors of the letter are adjacent to the academic labor system. So most of them are in or near universities. And so the letter focused primarily on their workplaces and how new social processes are emerging that cause academics to be silenced or removed from their positions um, as our intellectual freedom contracts. So sometimes people think that um, I overstate the importance of the trans rights activist movement as a gateway drug for identitarianism. That certainly is a harder case to make this week. Because the number one thing that this manifesto was condemned for was for being transphobic and for saying that all transgender people should be killed. 
Now, why did people think that? Um, because J.K. Rowling was a signatory to the letter. Now, the letter never mentions transgender people. It never mentions sexual identity, nor gender identity. It does not mention identity at all. But the response to the letter was that the letter signed off on um, the extinguishment of transgender people and the annihilation of their rights. And anyone who agreed with the letter was then labeled as transphobic. Uh, because J.K. Rowling had signed the letter, not because any of the contents of the letter said that. Now, I was surprised because, like, if I were a cancel culture identitarian, I would have focused on the one million dead Iraqis. If I was going to vest in the meaning of the letter, the social meaning of a signatory... I would have selected David Frum as the whipping boy in the letter. But people selected J.K. Rowling. Now, that was the first wave of reaction to the letter. Um, it doesn't even really matter what the letter advocated, because 0% of the discussion of the letter is about the words that comprise the letter. No one is having a conversation about that. And this, for me, indicated that we are actually hitting a new phase in identitarian meaning-making that we hadn't even reached three months ago. Now, after a while, people felt called upon to find other criticisms to make of the letter. And so there are three signatories of the letter um, who have been involved in deplatforming and pressuring for the removal of individuals who have advocated for the rights of the Palestinian people. Um, and so... The next phase of the attack on the letter from the identitarian left was to argue that the letter called for the exact opposite of its text. The argument was that the letter called for the silencing of everyone who wants to free Palestine which is interesting because the letter explicitly states that we shouldn't be silencing people for their views. The letter in its textual performance claims that we are over-regulating the views that people should advocate, and it states that it is wrong to fire people for advocating unpopular or controversial views. And yet the next main meaning that the identitarian left took from the letter was that the letter called for the firing uh, and silencing of people who wished to free Palestine. Because three signatories to the letter had been engaged in that practice in the past. 
Now, of course, Noam Chomsky is a signatory to the letter. Noam Chomsky has been condemning this practice for 50 years. Since the Six Day War in 1967, 53 years ago. So the argument was that although Noam Chomsky was, has long been known for his work on the inappropriate silencing of people for their views, and specifically for his work for Free Palestine, that Noam Chomsky had signed a letter calling for the silencing of everyone who wanted to free Palestine. And that's because the meaning of the letter is vested in the names of the three people who've done this. In other words, so here's what would have happened two fucking minutes ago if this letter had come out. We would have said to those three people, you people are hypocrites. You've been working to silence and deplatform Free Palestine, and it's hypocritical of you to sign this letter calling for the opposite. But we didn't do that. Instead, the identitarian left said, why is Noam Chomsky turned against Palestine and called for the silencing of um, those who wish to free it? It's because the meaning of the letter is completely detached from its text. That the meaning of the letter comes solely from the identities of its signatories that the text in the letter has no meaning at all. That all of the meaning comes from an analysis of the life narratives of its signatories. Uh, and this is like, we are sliding into this abyss faster than I can design this course. Ah, uh, this is like, this is a seminal moment. We should be fucking terrified that to people on the identitarian left, this letter means silence everyone who wishes to free Palestine and kill all the trans kids. When the letter says, um, we believe there's a left-right consensus that is shutting down academic freedom and shutting down discourse. That's what the text of the letter says. Now, there's another interesting thing about the letter. So I am a person, and I can show you the correspondence, who was silenced in the classroom for exercising academic freedom. I taught an economic history course at Simon Fraser University. And the second attack from my department during the two-year campaign of harassment to remove me from my job was to demand that I not, so I taught a course on how wealth is transferred from the global south to the global north. The course was comprised of 75% foreign students who were charged foreign student fees that drained the wealth of the bourgeoisie of the global south into the hands of the bourgeoisie of the global north. So that was part of the lecture I taught in the course. So I was contacted by my department chair, who would later go on to scurrilously accuse me of literally dozens of insane things, a uh, number of which are indictable offenses. And the first volley was to say, you can talk about north, South to North wealth transfer, 
but you cannot connect it to the economics of this department and how we're making money. So, I am one of the people this letter is trying to speak up for. This letter says there are junior academics all over the place who are facing threats and firing for exercising academic freedom that would not have imperiled their physical survival two years ago. Now, we get the third line of attack on this letter by the identitarian left. The identitarian left's next argument is that these people are hypocrites because their jobs are not in danger. And that their efforts to defend the jobs of people who are less rich and less white and less powerful than them are not an act of solidarity. They are an act of hypocrisy because their identity and status are different than mine, the person whose job they're trying to defend. Uh, so here the hypocrisy accusation is mobilized, but it's not mobilized with respect to the contents of the text. It's mobilized because the text is trying to engage in a form of cross-class solidarity. And it's therefore hypocritical because in an identitarian worldview, solidarity is hypocrisy. Uh, this uh, recording is slightly modified for the purposes of anonymization. Uh, a brief anecdote was told about the genuine and sincere beliefs of a number of transgender individuals who truly did understand my endorsement of the Noam Chomsky, Molly Worthen letter as a declaration that they should die. They believe that my qualified support for the letter is a murder threat against them. Because the letter was signed by J.K. Rowling. And the meaning of the letter inheres in the life narratives of its signatories, not in its texts. Now, this, um, I mean, this is an amazing moment at which to be teaching this, right? Like, um, because, um, Yes, oh yes, but Sarah, let me get to your point about privilege because the privilege discourse is, is totally opposite here. So um, what must precede um, acts of solidarity, like retweeting Black Lives Matter Chicago? What is it that makes a white identitarian feel that when they support uh, black American movements against police violence, that they are engaged in an act that is not hypocritical or morally inappropriate, given their accusations of hypocrisy for the cross-class nature of the alliance here. And there are two parts of this. Um, 
the first part is the insanity of privilege checking. So this term, check your privilege, came out about seven years ago, and it blew my mind. Because it mobilizes an insanely aristocratic metaphor. What do you check in the world in order to take it off? You check your coat. You go to an expensive restaurant or a club and you take off your coat and then you hand it typically to a person who is working class and often to a person is racial, who is racialized. And then you go in and you have an experience without your coat. And then you come out of the club and in order to get your coat back, you perform your class superiority over the coat check girl or the coat check boy. Note the infantilizing nature of the title where you don't even see them as a fellow adult. You tip the coat check girl or the coat check boy to thank them for holding your coat. Checking your privilege is exactly this. Did you remember to tip the privilege check boy on the way out of the meeting? You can't check your privilege on the way to a meeting. Your privilege isn't something you can take on or take off like a well-fitting coat. But that procedurally is the mental exercise. How does that mental exercise appear? It appears through rituals like territorial acknowledgements, where you perform your whiteness and your privilege by expressing your white guilt. And that is the tip you are giving the privilege check boy. Then you can express your solidarity with racialized people because you've now tipped the privilege check boy. So part of that is a ritualized act. You will notice that when uh, white identitarians retweet Black Lives Matter, there is a guilt, it is preceded by a guilt-ridden statement about one's own racism. A narcissistic guilt-ridden statement about one's own personal failures that are somehow injected into the narrative of black people being killed. So you put yourself in the narrative and then you treat that as purchasing the price of admission to advocate for those people. Um, so nobody who wrote this letter tipped the privilege check boy. Uh, the next element of how it is that people can inveigh against hypocrisy there and not in their own identitarian communications has to do with the aestheticized performance. So um, there's a moment when we're putting together the BC Eco-Socialist Party. And I mean, this is an extremely problematic organization. I think I've got it through some of its bad phases, but ultimately the party was created because 
two political organizers were in extreme social and financial debt to an eccentric millionaire. And the eccentric millionaire wanted the party to be created. And uh, I and another organizer were locked in a patron-client relationship with him. So we uh, needed to put this thing together, but this was not like an egalitarian project. Um, this was a patron and his two clients. And so one of the first things we had to put together was a founding board and a party launch. And the eccentric millionaire, um, and this is not an ill-intentioned eccentric millionaire. Like eccentric millionaires do terrible things mostly. Uh, this person was like trying to stop liquefied natural gas plants and um, stop uh, patriarchal violence and colonization and other bad things. Nevertheless, things in here in material relationships. So the millionaire said, look, I'm, I, I, we have to postpone the launch. There are no racialized young people who can appear with me when I launch the party. And I have been attacking the Green Party for not running enough non-white candidates. Everyone will think I'm a racist too if you, can, you have to find me brown people to stand next to me at this launch. And, and they, they have to read a statement. You can't read a statement. But um, they have to read a statement um, so that they can see that this is a democratic party. It's like, now, of course, this person knows that I grew up as a racialized person. So I'm in this moment where it's like, I'm canceling the parch. I'm canceling this thing unless you fetch me more darkies, Negro. Fetch me dar more darkies. Um, because one of the things that white identitarians like are diversity pictures, right? So when the, they, they like, and they've liked this for a long time, right? When um, the gentry, when the, the, uh, the, the court of the viceroy in Mexico City, when they were setting up their houses um, after the Spanish conquest, um, there was so, I mean, the Mexico Valley had 40 million indigenous people in it. It didn't matter that 80% of them died in epidemics. There was still sufficient labor to make maize and extract uh, minerals from the Mexico Valley. It was very expensive to get African slaves to the Mexico Valley. The lives of indigenous people were worth nothing. African slaves, there were all these transport charges. But aristocrats in the Mexico Valley needed the darkest, blackest African standing at the door of their home because it was aesthetically beautiful. Because the meaning of that body symbolically exceeded the value of the labor it could produce. So one of the ways that white supremacy and hegemony has flowed over the world has to do with the, the performances of high status whiteness involve curating the bodies around white bodies as diverse in order to make beautiful pictures 
with a range of colors. If a color isn't available for that picture, it's like being an artist who can't afford cadmium paint. You need to be able to paint the picture around you of your whiteness in all of the colors in the color wheel. And so that's one of the things that elite whites love to do. In fact, Canadian immigration law is based on this. Uh, in, um, uh, so like everywhere else that was part of the white settler state world, in 1926, um, Canada closed off immig immigration to non-whites, just like the US, just like Argentina, just like Brazil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. During our first slide into the fascist moment in the mid-1920s, immigration from Africa, East and South Asia was all cut off. The immigrants who had arrived up to that point, fine, we weren't sending them back, but we weren't going to let any more in. But by the 1950s, this was causing problems for Canadian elites because when American elites came to Muskoka, where many of them holidayed, like the Rockefellers, they wouldn't view elite Canadian families as their equal. And the reason was that the butler and the maids would be white. Now in Massachusetts, in New York, even though no plantation slavery happened in those places, the elites of New England and the Mid-Atlantic nevertheless bought the blackest butlers and the blackest maids because of their need to organize the color wheel. And the problem was that Anglo-Canadian elites couldn't compete with the Anglo elites of America because we didn't have enough black bodies to dress up and place in roles of servile display. So what we did was we opened special consular offices in Barbados and Jamaica. And we created the nanny visa. This is where it comes from. We created special work visas that allowed Canadian elites to import black servants from the Caribbean, but those visas were not a path to citizenship, just like the nanny visas aren't now. Um, they're simply to create a class of migrant workers for the display of the color wheel, because the display of that color wheel is part of the aesthetic of white supremacy in the Western Hemisphere. And so that is the other reason. Placing a working class body next to you does not redound to your glory as a member of the white elite. But placing a racialized body next to you does, provided that that racialized body is costumed in servility. Because it shows that you are enacting white supremacy aesthetically. And that's why you have um, right, white guilt 
is part of the performance of white supremacy, especially in this fucking country. Um, the tears of the colonizer are, are what this, this country runs on. And so people are, and I'm not saying they should stop, but I'm just saying that there is a style of Black Lives Matter Twitter post that also demonstrates your supremacy as a white person. Uh, and uh, that's an uncomfortable thing we just have to hold. We just have to see it, we just have to hold it. You, you, you can't fully resolve it. It is, what Marx would tell us, a contradiction and the contradictions are important. So, um, uh, yeah, the performance of tokenism. Um, say, uh, tell me about Mane Olympia because I, I don't know this story, Samina. Oh, the, the painting about Olympia, uh, of Mane's Olympia is basically that you have a white uh, model who is a prostitute basically and then you have a black body next to it who is sitting with a bouquet. So you create that white model identity, like white identity through a model, but then she's also a prostitute, okay? And then it is placed next to a black body of a maid who is holding a bouquet and looking up to her. So the whole contrast of this 19th century uh, uh, race and you know how the identities are placed to each other and um, so that is very interesting about Olympia. Absolutely. I mean, I think Manet, to his credit in the scene like that, is, is trying to draw our attention to the contradiction because yes. Manet is living in the world of the lynching of the black male body for its proximity. But at the same time, I imagine there are a lot of white supremacists in the Southern United States who masturbated to that. Ah... Uh, because you can, like, you can point out the contradiction, but you can't, like, alter the structural forces around it simply by pointing that out. Now, um, this actually, uh, I mean, this is really timely, and I'm really glad we're in this. I think we might go a bit long today, because I haven't actually, I'm now ready to start the story I was supposed to start 40 minutes ago. But I'm just fucking enraged. Like, seriously, I'm just fucking enraged. I just feel like we have slipped one notch down further into the shit abyss. Um, so, all right. So here is the story that I was planning to start with. Um, there, um, there is one of the, there is the moment of the Wallaces in America in the 19, in the 20, 1970s. Um, in a very unlikely turn, two men named Wallace, um, within a year of each other, inherited the control of American cults that punched way above their weight. Uh, one of those men uh, is Wallace Muhammad, uh, the son of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Now, in my more recent writing about identitarianism, 
I've talked a fair bit about how the nation of Islam um, is a crucial proto-identitarian organization in America. It gives us intellectual structures like dead name, uh, hugely important in the present identitarian moment. Um, Wallace Muhammad, understood that his father was like a greasy fraudster and that he had created a totally fake religion based on like space aliens and coercion and violence. Um, And like Malcolm X, uh, before him, he converted to actual Sunni Islam. But like, if there's any religion in the Western Hemisphere that has really pulled its fucking socks up, it's the Sunnis. Like, I would really not have expected that the transgender movement um, would have so many leaders advocating rape as a social good, and Sunni Muslims would have so few leaders advocating rape as a social good given like the sins or non-sins of those movements before 1950. Um, Like I'm not, it really goes to show that who a group is has so much to do with its contemporary leadership and so little to do with its canonical texts. So Wallace Muhammad um, looked at his church and first of all, the church had a fake Quran. Um, The Quran was actually a bunch of rantings of a guy named Louis Fard who died in the 20s, but that the church doctrine holds is immortal and is alive today, wandering the earth secretly. Um, And uh, most of the rest was plagiarized by Madame Blavatsky's book on theosophy. There are no sections of the Nation of Islam's Quran that are the same as the Quran. So this was like a really problematic, greasy movement. Like the only thing it had going for it was Muhammad Ali. And, uh, which is a lot, covers a lot of sins. Um, Anyway, Wallace Muhammad took it upon himself to reform the movement, um, to not only be uh, genuinely Muslim, but also to be feminist and to seek social justice. And the consequence was that, Thousands and thousands of people left the movement. Louis Farrakhan led the splinter group that abandoned that movement that today we know as the Nation of Islam. Uh, Farrakhan elaborated the doctrine to include more anti-Semitism and Farrakhan's own claims of being abducted by aliens in 1984. Um... Today, Wallace's movement is called The Mosque Cares. It is now a charity that assists mosques in doing social justice work and has disbanded as a religious organization. It's an extraordinary act of humility and self-destruction. The Farrakhan part of that movement is important when we study identitarianism because the Farrakhan movement contains a concept from the original name of the movement. Elijah Muhammad called the movement the Nation of Islam. But before, when it was led by Louis Fard 
in Detroit in the 1920s and 30s. It was called the Moorish Science Temple of America. And the argument that the, and it's the first movement to make the argument in favor of what we sometimes today call standpoint epistemology. The idea is, of the movement was that true scientific knowledge cannot be made by white people because white people um, were created by a Jew named Yacoub in third century Libya at the behest of Lucifer. And so consequently, our blood is tainted by the Jews so that we can never know true science. All the only people who can practice true science, according to the Moorish Science Temple of America or the contemporary nation of Islam, are uh, those who have African or Arab blood, uh, the Moors. So hard for me to not, like that, I watch that Seinfeld episode a lot. I just, whenever Farrakhan's on TV, it's like, the moops, the moops, you asshole. Anyway, um, but the idea is that only Moors can practice science because the ability to engage in empirical evidence-based reasoning lives in your blood. And if you haven't inherited the right blood, you cannot know the truth. And this is another way that the nation of Islam functions as the gateway to modern identitarianism. Because modern identitarianism includes an epistemology of the blood. So, that's the story of Wallace number one. We're going to come back to the epistemology of the blood in a minute, but now I'm going to tell you about the other Wallace. So, um, uh, like in Lord of the Rings, um, the, uh, the, the, the best way to understand Mormon denominations is to think about elf migrations in Lord of the Rings. So, the original Mormons are all following Joseph Smith. They're all living in Nauvoo, uh, Illinois, in 1844, when Joseph Smith is murdered uh, while running for president of the United States. Um, there are, at this time, about 15,000 Mormons. And, no, sorry, 30,000 Mormons. I'll say 30,000. When Joseph Smith is murdered, the Mormon church fractures into a number of denominations. Today, we're only really aware of one of them because most have died on the vine, as it were. Um, so we're, we mainly know about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, who were led by Brigham Young, who claimed to be Joseph Smith's successor from Illinois to present-day Utah. At the time, the followers of Brigham Young were trying to escape the United States. The problem was that by the time they got to Utah, the United States had annexed it through the Mexican-American War of 1844. 
So they went as far as they could away from the U.S., and then the U.S. caught up with them. And during the Romney presidential bids, we told lots of stories about those Mormons. But the term Mormon does not actually just refer to those people. It refers to all of the denominations that believe the Book of Mormon is a holy text. Now again, the Book of Mormon might have inspired Lewis Fard. It too is a giant sack of bullshit and nonsense, just like Fard's Quran. And the Mormons, like the Nation of Islam will do later, put a bunch of space alien stuff in their doctrine. So the next biggest group of Mormons were those who refused to leave their jobs, their homes, their farms in Illinois and Missouri and go into the desert. Uh, those people were looking for a leader for a long time. And in 1860, Joseph Smith's son, Joseph III, um, agreed to become their leader. And they created something called the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which was initially about the same size as the crew in Utah. Both were yeah, about 30,000 people. The RLDS, um, like the ones in Utah, were a cult based around crazy ideas and a fraudulent holy book. But in the 1960s, something extraordinary happened. The RLDS created a university called Graceland University, and they began sincerely investigating their own religion um, based on um, real social scientific principles. And the quorum, the ruling body of the religion, gradually, to its great horror, became aware that although they might have believed the fraud themselves, they were perpetrating a fraud upon their followers. All this came to a head when W. Wallace Smith, the prophet, died and was succeeded by his son, Wallace B. Smith. Wallace B. Smith um, threw in with the crew from Graceland that they had an enormous problem. While it was true that they loved Jesus and believed in social justice, and in fact, the, the church was already doing good things. It was working against the Vietnam War. It was involved in the peace movement. Um, and it was because it hated the Mormons in Utah. The Mormons in Utah were way more racist than they are now. They had a whole theory about how black people didn't have souls. And so the RLDS were also an anti-racist organization, as well as an anti-war organization. And they thought, well, shit, let's, and so Wallace B. Smith went, all right, let's go all the way. Let's fix this thing. Let's do what the other Wallace is doing and turn us into a real Protestant church who aren't fraudsters and embezzlers and liars. Similar things happened. They lost a fuck ton of followers. Ah, uh, but... What I want to draw your attention to now is the biggest problem and the biggest solution the RLDS faced. 
in the form of a woman named Little Pigeon or Clara B. Nicholas. Uh, one of the beliefs the Mormons hold or held, who the fuck knows, um, was that the indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere were the lost tribes of Israel and that they would convert en masse to Mormonism and it would cause the eschaton and Jesus would return. That indigenous people approving of Mormonism was the necessary condition to bring about the millennium, the end times, the wrap up of history. Well, the thing was that because the RLDS were an anti-racist organization, a lot of indigenous people had joined. And the leader of that group was a woman named Clara Nicholas, who renamed herself Little Pigeon. And when the American Indian movement held an event called The Longest Walk, where they walked from Alcatraz to Washington to protest the inequality of indigenous people, um, they were invited to take over the RLDS head office in Kansas City. Now, that ended up going wrong because the RLDS was also an anti-smoking organization, and a lot of the people on the longest walk were smokers. So anyway, there ended up being a confrontation and a police siege uh, over the smoking. But the point was that while the publishing company for the church, Herald House, for their white audience, were releasing all of these books, trying to decanonize the Book of Mormon and break the news slowly that the stories in it were bullshit. There was another branch of Herald House that published Clara Nicholas's books in which she argued that indigenous people, by virtue of their blood, their Israelite blood, had a special knowledge of history that trumped all academic knowledge of history. And that she knew because of her Lamanite blood that the testimony of the Book of Mormon was true. And not only was it true, it was the testimony of the neo-traditionalist movements. Uh, one of the reasons I'm a big fan of Dune is that when it came out in 1965, um, it was contrary to uh, pretty much a civilization-wide consensus called the secularization thesis. Um, the belief was on the part of pretty much all social science academics that um, the forces of secularization were inexorable and inevitable, just like democracy. People believed in a thing called progress. They believed in what today we call the progress myth. And the idea was that we were all going to get more rational, more egalitarian, more democratic, more sensitive, and more evidence-driven every year until the end of time. And that we were just on this, uh, we were just coasting upwards. And um, lots of evidence was already coming in saying that that might not be true. 
but uh, the social scientific consensus was very good at ignoring that evidence. And the book Dune is a wonderful book because what Frank Herbert says is, everything that you think is inevitable, inexorable, and eternal is so ephemeral, no one will remember it. And everything that you think is on the dustbin of history is actually the structure of human civilization. So in his book, Dune, um, the world is, uh, the universe is feudal, it's monarchical, and it's organized around religions and secret societies, and differences of gender are hugely important. Because we all thought that was the past. Um, David Lynch made a movie adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune in 1984. I show it to my students, not just because of the wonderful John Hodgman monologue, where he points out that everyone in the movie is both sexy and deformed at the same time. Um, the reason I showed my students, because it's shocking. But even by the standards of 1984, the secularization thesis is so powerful that when I show them the first scene of the movie and the emperor of the known universe is in his throne room and everybody is elaborately costumed and everything is covered in gold. I have to say to my students, well, this was done, you know, many years before the Trump presidency. We all thought that the leaders of the world would not rule for their whole lives and that they would stop covering everything in gold. So uh, like you have to educate the students that the throne room would have looked shocking in a science fiction context because there's nothing on the bridge of the star of the starship enterprise that's covered in gold uh, and that is the spirit of the secularization thesis this democratic meritocratic world that we're going to project into the future the next thing i have to point out to my students is I go, now in the opening monologue, they talk about something called the Great Revolt. But in the book in 1965, it's called the Butlerian Jihad. But in 1984, um, the people who made the movie figured that in the future, no one would know what the word Jihad meant because it was from the past. So, we have to remember that even after the Iranian Revolution, like even after we started getting unambiguous evidence that the world was desecularizing, the Re Iranian Revolution, the Reagan presidency, all those things, social scientists looked the other way and ignored it. They ignored it and they went, no, 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 this has, this is not what's going on. This is not what's going on. The world is secularizing. Religion is dying. Um, so eventually the truth that the secularization thesis was bullshit, that the world was desecularizing all around us, that we were returning to autocracy and secret societies and feudal nobility and oligarchs, um, Social science went into a crisis, particularly in the Western Hemisphere. And that crisis took on a number of forms. 
the most popular of which was misreading French postmodernists. Uh, it's not just the prerogative of Jordan Peterson to misread French postmodernists. People who claim to agree with French postmodernists mostly agree with them because French people write differently. And they, they have a sense of like fun and hyperbole in their language. Like English as the hegemonic language is kind of a shame because like Mandarin and French, it's previous and future competitors are much more fun languages that understand like the, the malleability of meaning and the importance of humor and the importance of exaggeration. That's not something that American English in particular handles. So a lot of Americans in the 80s and 90s read texts by Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida and Bruno Latour and that crew. And first of all, they didn't understand these people were arguing with each other um, because of how they learned to read the Bible, where that's like that's the basis of how Anglo-Americans read. It's the way we were taught to read the Bible in the 19th century. So we were told that the four Gospels agree with each other, even though, in fact, they're like four texts fighting with each other about what happened. So there's a tendency to overestimate agreement in texts uh, that we canonize. Uh, the other feature is a humorless literalism that we apply to these texts. And... There is nothing about Latour or Foucault or Derrida or Sartre or any of that crew um, that gets along with humorless literalism. What I tell my students when they have to read Foucault is when you read the book, imagine it's 2 a.m., you're in a bistro on the Seine, and someone is drunkenly yelling these words at you. That's a way to socially contextualize what's happening. Take things with a grain of salt. Understand that, like, these are fist-pounding points, not like sharp points. Anyway, so there was the retreat into a misreading of postmodernism, which people read as a kind of folk relativism. When people who, and, and really my favorite anecdote about the misreading is from a story about Bruno Latour. Bruno Latour came up with something called actor network theory, which honestly, I can't read French. And I don't think the English translations are right. I actually have no idea what the fuck he's on about. I have a little bit of an idea. The woman who's paying me to write a book about the pandemic, I promised her I would try and figure out what the book was about. Um, but I'm recognizing, like one of the reasons I can tell this story is that I'm recognizing that like I, am from this stunted literalist English tradition. And like Augustine of Hippo, I'm trapped in the English language. I deeply suck at other languages. Um, but at least I can, I can get cultural information to see how isolated and weird that perspective is. So Bruno Latour is on a train in the United States on his way to deliver a lecture on his post-structuralist worldview and um, the actor network theory as espoused in the pasteurization of France. And he's like, 
he's on the internet and like many gentlemen like myself he looks himself up right he's on the train he's bored he wants to see his name and he finds a climate change denier using actor network theory to prove that there's no scientific consensus on climate change what does latour do he gets to the event he's supposed to be speaking at tears up his speech and explains to everybody how it's really important to work against climate change how anthropogenic climate change is obviously urgently important science i think that that the inability of americans to take the relativistic challenges to a sort of structuralist absolutism with a grain of salt to understand who the authors were and the context of the challenge um, has deeply impaired Anglo-Americans' ability to understand the world. So when religious studies scholars and sociologists and anthropologists finally had to admit that the that the secularization thesis was nonsense and that the world had deviated from it the moment anwar el sadat succeeded gamal abdel nasser um then there was the question well what do we replace this with now unfortunately here i i um I have to cast some shade at the subcontinent. Uh, generally, I'm pretty congratulatory, but I do not feel that uh, Depeche Chakrabarty intervened in a helpful way for us at this point. Um, Chakrabarty's work on post-colonial theory is very epistemologically problematic um, because he constructs a term called subaltern pasts. Um, in uh, his sort of canonical text on uh, post-colonial theory, Chakrabarty tells a fascinating story that I would actually like to retell because he misses like the main part of the story. Um, he talks about uh, the Santal uprising and how it converged with what the West calls the Indian mutiny. Uh, right, so there, the British East India Company, because it's an old school company and not like a liberal capitalist company, is forced by the British government to cover its own uh, military and law enforcement costs. Right, that the the reason American capitalism outcompeted. European mercantilist capitalism is because America was willing to tax its citizens to run an army that went around the world working for free for its corporations. Uh, in the older model of capitalism, the idea was that you created a corporation so the state wouldn't have to pay for the army because the purpose of capitalism was to enrich the state in order to enrich the monarch, rather than to impoverish the state in order to enrich the bourgeoisie. So the Indian mutiny happens because the 
East India Company won't fund uh, its own army, and it has to be replaced by the British Raj, where British people, the British working class, are taxed to pay for the extractive project in India. Uh, what interests Chakrabarty are the Santals, um, a group of uh, tribespeople from the central jungle zone who join the uprising despite the fact that they're not supporters of the Mughal Empire, they're not associated with the uh, Hindu principalities that join, um, they have a different motive. They join the uprising, uh, as Chakrabarty narrates it, because their god Thakur instructs them to. And then Chakrabarty says, this is the boundary of history, and this is a problem, because when the secularization thesis was how we thought, our response would be to anthropologize the beliefs of the Santals. What we would do is we would say, well, the god Thakur isn't real, because social science is methodologically atheistic. So we would construct so we would not see Thakur as an actor. We would see the consciousness of the Santals as the actor and Thakur as a project of their consciousness. So Thakur isn't real. The Santals' consciousness is real. The Santals' consciousness is formed by structural factors and those structural factors make the Santals go to war. And Chakrabarty says, well, what if um, uh, this is problematic, like this, this colonizes the voice of the Santals, right? This, um, this marginalizes the Santals because we won't take what they say about themselves seriously. Um, and so the discipline of history is limited by its inability to include the god Thakur. Now, I'm going to give you a marginal note here that is just like a thing I want to get done before I die that I probably won't. But what Chakrabarty doesn't tell us is how he knows about Thakur and the Santals. Um, and he knows about them through Charles Dickens. Uh, Charles Dickens becomes a celebrated author because he's a war correspondent who covers the Indian Mutiny. And Dickens, um, and like we underestimate Shakespeare, we underestimate Dickens. Like one of the weird things about like really getting into the madness of the world is realizing that there are like these horrible, like these white authors we've been trying to find a lot of flaws with and they have a lot of flaws, but our mistake is to then say, well, they weren't that important when in fact, they're even more important when you realize how crazy the whole scene was. Right, so um, Dickens uh, loves the Santals. Why does he love the Santals? Because they're unrepresentative of the mutineers, right? What the Indian mutiny wants to create is uh, as a state like, um, um, well, what the Meiji Restoration will create in Japan a generation later. It wants to create a modern state that metabolizes the efficiencies of European imperialism um, through a nationalism uh, based on the bourgeoisie of the subcontinent. 
that's their project. But the Santels, because they're like right out of left field, they have a romantic project. And they have a romantic martial art. The Santals believe that Thakur has taught them a martial art that will make them immune to bullets. And European romantics love this because it makes the people they're colonizing both noble and primitive at the same time. It makes the resistance of, of, of Euro-American empire quaint and beautiful and romantic while making European empire inexorable. It solves the problem of the liberal who wants to both sympathize with the colonized people and wants to profit from the white supremacist imperialism. And so the Santals are perfect. People read Dickens' stories of the Santals. There, those, the tears, the, the, the tears of the colonizer. Uh, they come down their face. Um, there's a funny thing, though. Um, there's no evidence that, um, any Native Americans believed that they knew a martial art that would make them immune to bullets until the paper in Carson City, Nevada, published Charles Dickens' articles. And there's no evidence that there were any Chinese secret societies believed uh, that that believed that Iron Shirt Qigong could make them immune to bullets until Charles Dickens' articles were published in Hong Kong. Um, it may be that on the long list of bizarre things like creating anti-child labor laws that we can place at the feet of Charles Dickens, we might also be able to place there the Boxer Rebellion and the Ghost Dance. Now, I think that's a more interesting story than the one Chakrabarty told. But American academics went for the other story. And they created a hideous thing called Abundant History. Um, and there's like there are other terms than Abundant History for this. Anthropologists really enjoyed these ideas, but uh, the abundant historians, um, they're from my discipline and that's all good. Okay, one second here. Um, okay, so the abundant historians um, from my discipline, went, well, this is very exciting. Um, why don't we become instead of methodologically atheist, methodologically agnostic. What if we argue, what if we agree with Little Pigeon, with Clara Nicholas, that if you're indigenous, what's true for you doesn't have to be what's true for us. What if we agree that the epistemology of the blood is okay. 
what if we agree that in my epistemology we evolved from apes but in your epistemology because you're a colonized person you came from a giant clamshell that the great raven broke with his beak what if there is no central truth that it's all true at once and that we're actually oppressing you by not recognizing that the truth lives in your blood and that's the moment in which we're situated huge swaths of the religious studies and anthropology discipline believe that they are engaged in an anti-colonial project by sanctifying what we're generally terming standpoint epistemology. Um, that what is true about the past, what is true about times and places and peoples where you are not, is not generated intersubjectively by us debating what happened there, but is generated subjectively um, through the identity group you argue that you are part of. So what's happened here is that um, the experience of the loss of confidence, the realization of the falsity of the progress myth, the collapse of the secularization thesis created this opening where the social sciences um, have utterly destabilized their project, uh, where we cannot engage in debates about what is true in a room full of people with variegated identities that we can't use. And, and this brings me back to the rant from the beginning. So I had a debate on my Facebook page about whether what JK Rowling said was transphobic. Everybody said JK Rowling is a transphobe. And so I said, all right, could you post some text to my page? showing me the transphobic quotes. And the response was, here are the quotes. And I went, okay, there are nine clauses here. Let's go through them clause by clause and find the transphobia in each clause. And the response was a refusal to do this. Instead, what was argued was that trans people find the quotes transphobic. And that the truth about what the words in the Rowling quotes mean doesn't live inside the words. That I have no access to the truth about what the words mean because I'm from the wrong identity group to be able to know the meaning of the words. And so the question, and this is in fact where social media is going right now. So social media debates increasingly in the identitarian turn, I want to be very clear, this is happening on the right at the same time as the left. The only thing social media can debate is the hierarchy of identity groups 
as to which identity group is entitled to report on what's true about something. But you can only debate what identity groups are entitled and what identity groups are authorized to know. You're not able to debate the actual truth claim. That's being walled off now. So the question becomes, if I'm engaged in a debate about race in the identitarian world, whether what I say is true lives in whether people choose to recognize my African blood. It doesn't live in how we interpret the words we're reading together. That all the intersubjective shared space can do is determine the entitlement to report on the truth. It can no longer debate the truth. Um, and the same thing is happening on the right, but way worse. And I think everyone knows how it works on the right, which is it's the narration of white victimhood. That your ability to report on whether affirmative action works on the right has to do with whether you're a white man who's been passed over for a promotion or a job by somebody who wasn't a white man. Then you can say, well, look, I have experienced, like, look, look at my white, white victimhood, look at my white identity. Um, I'm unemployed. Um, there's a brown woman who has the job I should have had. As the most victimized person and as the whitest person, I can now tell you whether affirmative action is good. I can tell you whether affirmative action is bad. And I can tell you whether I was passed over because of affirmative action or whether it was just because I suck. Um, because the knowledge lives in the blood. And what we're doing when we engage in this left identitarianism of the knowledge of the blood, what we're really doing is we're fueling the hegemonic identitarianism, which is not ours. It's not the fucking left Twitter sphere or some universities or some liberal arts colleges. It's Donald Trump and Narendra Modi and like it's it's those people who believe passionately that knowledge and the entitlement to be true is passed down, lives inside your blood, and is written on the outside of your body. And this is a very curious moment. The Harper's piece is a deeply flawed piece. And many people criticize the way in which it engages in a both sides discourse. But there is some legitimacy to the argument of a both sides discourse, not in terms of power, not in terms of theory, but in terms of the emergent consensus uh, as to where the truth lives.